0: We're going to be discussing how to crush tight poker players. A lot of poker players are weak, tight, straightforward. They never get out of line. And it's up to you to figure out how to maximally exploit them. So we are going to be discussing that today. Before we get to it, very briefly, a lot of you have asked me how to feel to win a tournament the other day. Feels good. I won a tournament just the other day. I won a 95-person tournament. Tournament, 95 entry tournament in the PokerGo Studios, a Storm invitational. You had to be invited to play. They invited me last minute, and it was lucky for me. I won 130000 bucks. I gave 5% of it to Poker Coaching, not even members, people in our Discord. So make sure you're there. Sorry for bothering you. I'd like to shill you something. No, thank you. No need to shill. Anyway, I want to want part tournament. I am um, going to review a lot of those hands with all of you. Not today, not next week, but the next week. I have a lot on my plate. I'm currently in the full swing making the brand new advanced cash game course at PokerCoaching.com. But once I'm done with that, I'm going to load up a bunch of hands. And we are going to review those hands here on a little poker. The trophy's bigger than me. Yeah, it's actually way up there. You see it way up there? Way up there, I was going to get it down. But it's about 50 pounds and far too heavy. I could barely get it up there. I was actually going to put it right over there, but it would not fit, so I put it the only place I could. Way up there. It's never going to come down. My wife thought it was going to break the bookshelf, but it did not, and I think it'll be fine. So anyway, feels good to win a tournament. Got 130000 bucks. Nice win. Funny enough, it's embarrassing, but I've never won a tournament in the Poker Go studio. To be fair, I've probably only played, I don't know, 60 or 70 times. But, but, had a lot of seconds, a lot of thirds and fifths, so it's nice to get a win. Anyway, we'll be going through a lot of those hands, not this week, not next week, but the next week. Today, we are going to be discussing how to crush tight poker players. As always, when you're considering exploiting a specific opponent, you want to ask, what does my opponent do wrong? And a lot of people think, my opponent's too tight. Okay, well, how are they too tight? Very important to ask yourself, what is your specific opponent doing incorrectly? Because, as I see, have listed right here, tight players can be a little too tight preflop. They can be way too tight preflop. They can be too prone to fold strong hands to aggression. They can be never willing to fold strong hands to aggression. Can do lots of things wrong, right? They can be super tight until they show aggression. They can be... Weak on specific betting rounds, and they can be weak against specific betting lines. And we are going to go through each of these today. Is it normal to feel like you're being cheated? No. You have to realize that you're probably just not great at poker. Or you have to realize there's a lot of variance in poker. There's a lot of variance in poker. I want to give you a really quick example. I won a tournament the other day. This tournament that I won took, you know how long this tournament took? Seven hours from start to finish. It took seven hours, and I will tell you all, I won almost every all-in. Two times I got it all-in with ace-two against hands that were dominating me, and I won both. Neither of them was for all my money, but I got all-in with the ace-two, and I won both. One of the times I got it all-in before the flop, and the flop came queen-three-three, three, and I was against ace-queen, and I made a flush with my two of clubs. You think my opponent thought they were being cheated? Maybe if they were playing online and that happened three times in a row, they think, oh, the site's rigged. But no, it's just variance. Another time, I got it all in with Ace-2 against Ace-10, and it comes 5-4-3. They just give me a straight right on the flop. That's lucky. But, like, it happens, you know? Once I uh, got it in with Ace-King for a lot of chips and lost to Queen-Jack. Another time, I got it all in with Queen-Jack against Ace-King, and I lost a lot of chips. On the second hand of the tournament, I busted, and I had to re-enter. Literally, second hand of the tournament, I got all in with, uh, what I had, I had 10s uh, against ace-queen, I think, and I lost. Like, there's variance, variance exists. If you think you're being cheated, uh, you're probably not, and you're probably just not fully understanding that variance exists. I won the majority of my all-ins over the course of a seven-hour period, and I ran ungodly hot. Funny enough, the, the day before, I actually was going to go meet a few friends for dinner. So one of the guys said, why don't you just meet me at the high-stakes blackjack table, we'll hang out for a little bit. Well, I proceeded to lose every hand for about two hours. I probably lost 90% of my flips. It was like a joke. Did I think it was rigged? No, I just understand how coin flips work. Anyway, if someone is a little too tight preflop, barely. For example, let's take a look at some GTO preflop charts. Let's say we're playing in a tournament. 80 big blinds deep. Let's say they are under the gun. And let's say instead of raising this range here, they don't raise king-eight suited or 10-8 suited or six-five suited or fours or threes or twos. And they raise every other hand listed. You can't really exploit that player all that much because they're not really doing anything horribly bad. What if instead we look at their button range? What if instead of raising this range on the button, they fold all of these hands on the cusp, these weakest flush uh, draws like 10-2 suited, five-two suited, six-three suited, offsuit, 10-7 offsuit, King-5 offsuit, but then they raise all the other hands. You can't really exploit them all that much. Sure, maybe you can 3-bet them a little bit more than GTO recommends, but you're not going to be able to do a whole lot to take advantage of that player. So, that's the answer to what do you do against the first type of player. The answer is not a lot. What about if someone is way too tight preflop, though? What if they are way too tight? Well, again, you want to ask, how are they too tight? Are they not calling raises enough? Are they not 3-betting enough? Are they not 4-betting enough? Are they not 5-betting enough? Etc. Are they folding their blinds too often? Well, you want to ask, what does my particular opponent do wrong? Let's take a look at this hypothetical spot. Let's say we're looking at the big blind versus a raise from the button in a tournament. Here is how the big blind should defend. You see this? They should be 3-betting the hands in red, calling the hands in green. Now, if they're not going to 3-bet the hands in red and call the hands in green, what are they doing differently? This is what you want to be asking. Are they going to fold the hands on the bottom of the range? Maybe they don't call the vast majority of these offsuit trashy hands like queen four offsuit, 10-6 offsuit, 7-5 offsuit, 4-3 offsuit. Maybe they are folding all those. Well, if they're folding all those, then what should you do? Well, the answer is you should raise wider, right? What if they don't three bet enough? What if they don't three bet all these suited connected hands It will make you fold out the weakest portion of your range? Well, you should also raise wider. So, I have listed right here in the notes, many players fold their big blinds too often to aggression, and many players do not 3-bet enough. Okay, so if they're not going to 3-bet enough, especially with these hands, and these hands, these trashy hands, like King-6 offsuit, King-5 offsuit, A-6 offsuit, 10-8 offsuit, and they're going to fold the hands on the bottom of the playable range, what does that do to your button-raising range? When they fold you on the button, how should you adjust? Well, here's the GTO strategy. In a tournament, 80 big blinds deep, you should be raising 50... 5% 5% of hands. Well, you should raise wider. You should probably take all these suited hands and raise them. You should probably take a lot of the offsuit hands on the cusp and raise them. I'm not exactly sure how wide you can raise in this scenario, because I have not done diligent research on a hypothetical opponent who does some random things hypothetically different. But you can actually run a solver and think, and adjust the opponent's defending strategy, and you'll come up with a wider ranging range. Now, as they're just a little bit too tight, you should raise a little bit wider. As they're a lot too tight though, you should be raising a whole lot wider. And as they're going to be 3-betting less often, you get to raise like wider and wider. Because if they call pre-flop kind of wide, but then just check fold a lot on the flop, it's not that big of a deal. Like It's fine for you, right? But if they're going to be 3-betting you a lot, making you fold out the bottom portion of your range, well then, that's not so good. As they 3-bet more aggressively and closer to the GTO strategy, you do not get to raise a whole lot wider. If they call wider then play passively post-flop, that's fine. Think of players who do not play passive. The student I've been coaching for the last month, Slick Rick. The first month we started coaching, he won 70000 bucks in live tournaments. Yesterday, he won his first World Series of Poker circuit ring. He went to Choctaw, decided, you know, I'm going to try to win a circuit ring. I told him, sit at home and grind cash games. He said, I want to go play some, cat- some tournaments. I, I thought that would be a nice, good series near him. He took fifth place in an early tournament after losing every single tournament he played for the first few days. But now... He won a circuit ring. He's going to think tournaments are easy. My goal was to teach him to play live cash games. and went about 100 bucks an hour, which he's already winning 120 bucks an hour when he's playing live cash games. So that's good. Got him up to speed there in about a month. And in tournaments, he's just been absolutely crushing it. So that's good for him. He's not too weak and passive. He gets in there battles. You find they're tighter in the big blind versus button or big blind versus small blind. People are way tighter big blind versus button because against the small blind, they're getting very, very good odds right? If they're, they're getting good odds to defend the big blind in position against the small blind raise a lot of the time, closing the action, right? Whereas against the button, they're going to be out of position. People realize out of position is bad. What should we do against calling stations? We're not talking about calling stations today. I don't know if you read the title. The title of today's session is How to Crush Tight Poker Players. How to Crush Tight Poker Players. Okay? So, most people their big blinds too often do aggression, and they especially do not 3-bet often enough in general across the board. So let's take a look at a, I don't know, a hijack raising range. Say you think the cutoff and the button and the small blind and the big blind are all not going to 3-bet often enough. Okay, how should you adjust your raising range? Well, take all the hands that are on the cusp, especially the suited ones that have good post flop playability, and raise them in, in addition to these hands. That's going to be like any King X suited, Queen 7, Jack 7, 9, 6, 7, 5, 8, 5, 6, 4, 5, 3, 4, 3. All these suited hands become very reasonable to raise. You can probably also go way with raising stuff like King 9 offsuit, Queen 9 offsuit, ten nine offsuit, Jack 9 offsuit, 9 8 offsuit, a 7 offsuit. And so, I think all of these are situations where you need to be raising slightly wider because your opponents are not going to 3-bet enough. Even if they're going to call with the GTO calling range, if they don't three bet enough, then you get to raise wider. Let's take a look at the cutoff versus a raise from the hijack in this scenario, 40 big lines or 80 big blinds deep in a tournament. Notice all these hands they should be calling. Are they going to call King 6 suited, 10 8 suited, 7 6 suited, 6 5 suited, Pocket 2s, King Jack offsuit? A lot of people don't. A lot of people just fold. How big are we raising in this spot? big blinds I think is what we have set up here. Small raises. You don't need to be raising humongous, although 2.5 is probably fine, three is even fine, it doesn't really matter all that much. As you raise bigger you gotta play tighter, and you don't really wanna play tighter in the ideal world. How should the button be playing versus raise? Are they calling king four suited, queen eight suited, queen nine suited, eight six suited, six four suited, five three suited every time, queen ten offsuit? The answer to that for most people is no. Okay, so going back to that, should we be raising wider from the hijack? And I think the answer is a pretty definitive yes. Here we go. Come on, computer. Working on the admin side over here, so it's slightly, slightly slower than the public side. Um, yeah, so as you see here, anyway, this is what we need to be raising. This plus wider. And that's going to be good. Now, as you get an earlier and earlier and earlier position, you do not get to raise slight, slightly. Uh, you don't get to raise quite as wide because you have to worry about more and more and more people randomly waking up with a strong hand. But from something like the hijack and later, as the players are going to three bet you less often, you get to raise wider. And as they're going to call less often, you get to raise wider. And I think most that's going to be the case for most people. Also, almost all players do not four bet bluff often enough. Let's discuss specifically this. Let's take a look at button. No, actually, let's take a look at uh, cutoff. Versus 3-bet from button. Okay, so this is when the cutoff raises, the button 3-bets, and it gets back to us. What should we be 4-betting as the cutoff? Well, the good hands, of course, but then a smattering of bluffs. Is your opponent 4-betting, Ace-2 suited, King-5 suited, King-9 suited, King-Jack off Ace-10 off-suit, Ace-9 offsuit, ace off-suit? What do you think? We have aggressive players in the chat today, huh? what is considered a tight player. We are literally discussing this. A player is tight if they do not 4-bet bluff these hands. I literally wrote it right here. Almost all players do not 4-bet enough preflop. Do most people 4-bet? Ace 2 suited, King 5 suited, King 9 suited, King Jack, Ace 10, and Ace 9 offsuit. I personally think most people don't. So, if they're not gonna 4-bet enough, what should the button do? Well, the button should three bet way wider. So let's look at button versus raise from cutoff. Notice all the hands we should be three betting. All this junky suited stuff, a bunch of offsuit cards, queen 10, king 10, ace eight, 7, jack eight, king seven suited, ace two suited, ace six suited. All of these hands that are sometimes three bets become very easy three bets if your opponent's gonna fold too often. And if your opponent's not going to 4-bat enough. Okay? So, when the cutoff raises and you're on the button and you have the Jack-8 suited or 10-7 suited or King-8 suited or King-3 suited, Ace-2 suited, Jack-10, Queen-10, King-10 offsuit, Ace-8 offsuit, Ace-9 offsuit, all these hands should very likely just be 3-bat, which most people do not do. And you'll find this is actually why a lot of Loose, aggressive, badly players end up getting in these weird leveling wars against each other because they have this theory that people don't 3-bet, 4-bet, 5-bet, 6-bet, 7-bet, whatever, often enough, especially with bluffs, and that allows players to play wider and wider. Now, of course, you have to know your opponent. Ideally, you want to be 3-betting the people who are going to not 4-bet enough to begin with. If your opponent's loose, aggressive, and insane, this whole all changes, right? But if your opponent's not going to 4-bet enough, you in turn get to 3-bet more. Essentially, as your opponent going to take the passive actions more often, calling or folding, against your aggressive actions, you get to play wider. And as they play tighter and tighter and tighter, you get to play wider and wider and wider. Now, when they do 4-bet you, if you 3-bet all these junky hands, then I'm recommending you 3-bet a large chunk of the time, and then your opponent does 4-bet you, what should you do with hands like Queen 10 offsuit and King 7 suited and Ace 2 suited? Well, obviously fold, because you're absolutely crushed, right? Let's take a look at what Button should do versus four bet, by the way, from the cutoff. Notice here, you're supposed to call a lot of this stuff. 8-7 suited, king-nine suited, ace-three suited, king-queen suit, ace-jack offsuit, ace-queen offsuit. All these hands on the bottom of the shoving range, besides maybe like ace-queen, ace-jack suited, maybe king-jack suited, maybe jack-10, 10-9, maybe jack-10 suited, maybe 10-9 suited maybe the pairs, everything else should be folded, especially the offsuit stuff. But even this weak suited stuff becomes pretty easy folds, okay? Because you got to realize your opponent does not have the bluffs that they should have. If your opponent does not have the bluffs that they should have, you in turn should be drastically overfolding. So essentially we have found a spot where now the opponent's range becomes super duper strong and they're probably not folding their super duper strong range. Does this apply to cash games? Of course it does. We're discussing 80 big blinds deep poker. 80 big blinds deep and 100 big blinds deep play very similarly. Might as well be the same game. There are some differences, of course, but in this scenario, we're talking about no payout implication cat, uh, tournament. That no payout implication tournament essentially means the same thing as the tournament. Is it worth it to learn spinning goes? Depends on what you're trying to accomplish in life. We have a spinning go course at pokercoaching.com by one of the biggest crushers, Ryan O'Donnell. Check it out. He actually won a 25K bracelet a year or two ago in the World Series. Never really plays live, just decided to come play some tournaments. Did he win? Oh, no, he didn't win. He didn't win. He took second or third. My bad. Not trying to give fake news here. First live tournament series, so though, cash is for like a million bucks. Good for him. Okay, that's what to do against people who play too uh, way too tightly preflop. By the way, Louis Philippe here, who runs our poker coaching study session, says, a very simple exploit. Three bet a lot preflop, bets them all on the flop a lot. Easy game, and I agree. Easy game. Next, a lot of people fold strong hands to aggression. If your opponent's gonna make a hand like top pair, but then fold it when you apply aggression, A turn check raise. Look at this horrible formatting. I must've been out of it. Too many days of partying in Vegas makes me not be able to write sentences very well. This isn't even a sentence. This is just three words. Uh, Some people will fold hands that are normally quite strong if you apply a lot of aggression. So say you check raise the flop. Say they raise, you call the button. Or big blind, whatever. Flop comes, you check. They bet, you check-raise. Some of your weakest, tightest opponents will let go of top pair right there. It's crazy. I don't know why they would do it. But they do. Some weak tight players let go of top pair immediately on the flop. Some people do it on the turn. And to be fair, it becomes more reasonable to fold top pair on the turn to a raise. But again, if the best hands you have, to some extent, are top pair, you can't really go around folding them to a check-raise, especially from an aggressive player. You're going to get crushed. A lot of people especially in the small and middle stakes who really don't want to go broke, fold out all sorts of decently strong hands to triple barrel bluffs. So if you go flop bet, turn bet, and river bet, they'll just fold almost everything. Take an exam- Take for an example, someone uh, you raise, someone calls from the big blind, flop comes, whatever. They check, you bet. If you know they're going to check raise, top pair, good kicker, and better on the flop, as a lot of straightforward players do, what does that make their check calling range? while their check-calling range, is all quite weak and all quite marginal. So, unless they improve to trips or two-pair, or straight or whatever, they're going to probably fold out by the river, because a lot of people don't call down top-pair, bad-kicker, and worse if you bet the flop and the turn and the river. So, these players make your life super easy. They check-raise everything good on the flop, and then when they do check-call, they have something marginal, and they fold everything marginal if you put them all in by the river, or bet a lot by the river. So, all you have to do against a lot of these players is bet flop, bet turn, bet river, you win almost every pot, easy game. I know that sounds overly simplistic. I know some of your opponents are going to be calling stations, and they're never going to fold any pair. But against these players, these type players we're talking about, you can completely run them over. I made a new book, by the way, recently. Uh, if you're here and you like this, you will like the book. It's called 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em. It'll be coming out mm, early December, but you can go ahead and pre-order it. On Amazon, on d Poker, check it out. 100 Essential Tips to Master no Limit Hold'em. We go through all sorts of spots in GTO world and exploitative world for scenarios that you must master to win. Check it out. Next, some players never fold strong hands to aggression. Some of your opponents who play too tightly, when they do finally put a lot of money in the pot, or when they do have a hand they think is really good, they are literally never, ever, ever, ever folding. This is likely because they never enter a pot or rarely enter a pot, and when they do and they have a hand they think is strong, they think that they are supposed to win. So, if they think they're supposed to win, they are usually not going to fold. So what do you want to do against these players? What do you do against players who think they're supposed to win and they literally never fold a hand like pocket aces? Well, you want to try to play hands that can beat pocket aces, right? You want to play more implied odds hands that can beat hands like overpairs and like pocket aces. Is the new book on Audible? It is. I've already recorded it. I sat in a little book studio, and I recorded for about 30 hours. Reading to all of you. Are the preflop charts in the book? No, but the preflop charts are on the app. We have a poker coaching app. Search the poker coaching app, and it'll come right up. If I put all the books in a chart, the book would be like... 300 pages long of just charts. That's silly. So we have an app that does it all for you. Where's my phone? I'll literally show you. Let's see. Let's see how quick I can pull up a chart. Okay. I was literally not, not didn't even have my phone open. It has to log in. It's going to automatically log me in. Go to GTO preflop charts. Let's do 40 big blinds deep. Um, On the button versus a four bat. All in from the cuff. Here we go. That's the spot I wanted to pull up. Chart comes up. There it is. We got it on the phone. It took about five seconds from not even having my phone open, not even knowing I was about to do it. That's how well the chart works. We also have a lot of quizzes on the on the uh, app that will quiz you on all sorts of spots so that you learn the charts and you don't have to consistently reference them, although referencing them over and over and over is a really good way to learn them. So against players who are going to just not fold aces after the flop, play a lot of hands that can beat aces. So this is going to be implied odds hands and pairs. So... Say these players raise and you have the, well let's take an example. Let's say they raise under the gun and you're playing, I don't know, 80 big blinds deep and you're on the button versus a raise from under the gun. You're gonna see that you should play pretty tight. But take a look at the hands that like to play in general. Lots of suited kings, lots of suited aces, a lot of suited connectors and gappers. Right? If you know your opponent's literally never gonna fold Pocket Ace's pre well, what should we do? I'm sorry, Pocket Ace's post-flop, brains work. If you know they're never going to fold ace's post-flop, you should play more suited kings, more suited connectors, and more suited gappers. So like 10-7, 9-6, 8-5, 7-4, 6-3, 4-3. These all become very, very reasonable hands to call in position against these players on the button. What if you are in the hijack seat? Now you got to play a lot tighter because you are, um, well, not, close, not, not on the button pre-flop. So take a look now about how tight you should play pre-flop in the hijack versus an under-the-gun raise. Well, now you see even some suited aces fold, but you should literally never fold suited aces before the flop against someone who's not going to fold kings on any flop that they have an overpair on, right? So you should be playing all the suited aces, queen nine, jack nine, all these hands that are suited, right? All the suited connectors, all the suited gappers, even though, yeah, you're going to get three bet sometimes pre flop by someone yet to act. But fortunately for you, if your opponent is this type of player and your opponent's yet to act or anywhere near competent, they should not be three betting very often at all. Instead, they should be calling with all sorts of suited stuff like you are trying to do. So all these hands become very nice, playable hands against a player who's raising with a strong range to begin with, meaning you don't have a ton of pre-flop fold equity, and they're going to stack off far too often with a hand like aces when it comes nine-eight-six, and you're sitting there with a straight or two pair or whatever. Notice I did not say play more offsuit hands. Hands that are offsuit are quite bad against strong ranges, and you see even against a normal GTO range, ace-jack offsuit. King Jack offsuit, Queen Jack offsuit, just to fold, right? So these are hands that you do not get to play against strong under the gun ranges. You can't tell they're only opening aces. I did not say they were only opening aces. Nowhere did I say your opponents only raising aces. Let's take a look at the under the gun range, just for clarity. I said your opponents raising a range that is too tight preflop, and they're not going to fold hands that they deem to be very strong post flop, like over pairs. Okay. So maybe they're not raising suited ace maybe ace seven and lower. Maybe they're not raising these. Maybe they're not raising king nine suited, queen nine suited, jack nine suited, 10 eight suited, 10 nine suited, pocket fives, fours, threes twos, ace jack, ace 10, king queen. Maybe they're folding all those. So that leaves their range something like sixes or better, suited broadway hands. I think that's very reasonable. Ace king, ace queen. Maybe ace, king queen and ace jack. That's a really, really, really strong range. And these types of players will often telegraph the strength of their hand with their betting strategy, even more. Maybe the player raises to 2.5 big blinds with everything besides aces and kings, which they make four big blinds preflop because they're scared of getting outdrawn. They want to charge you. Maybe they always potted on the flop with aces and kings, and they bet half pot with everything else for the same reason, right? These players who are especially bad, remember, we're talking about someone who's really bad here. They're way too tight preflop. They can't even be bothered to study preflop charts. If they can't even be bothered to study preflop charts, they're not good at poker. No calls from under the gun with any big blinds. When you are first to act under the gun, you either raise or you fold. Whenever you're in every position and, you're, and they fold around to you, you raise or fold. No, we are not doing any limping. On the button, you raise or you fold. You do not limp. Limping is bad when you are first to enter the pot. Because you, there's a lot of merit in stealing the blinds and the antis, especially with the bottom portion of your range. And with your good hands, you want to build the pot. So either you want to steal a pot preflop and knock get action with the trash of your hands, or you want to build the pot with your good hands. Okay? So, if your opponent's playing this range but far tighter, they will naturally have aces, kings, queens, whatever, top pair, top kicker with ace, king, ace, queen, far more often than if they're raising with the hands on the cusp of playability. There's a lot, and I'm telling you, a lot of people do not raise king-eight suited under the gun. If you go to Choctaw right now, where my student Slick Rick is playing, and you ask him, are people raising king-eight suited under the gun, the answer is almost always No. And if you ask the players, are they 3-betting often enough? If someone raises under-gun, the answer is almost always no. So if anything, they should be raising wider than this under-the-gun. But they don't. Why are they not doing that? Well, if you boil it all down, the answer is they're bad at poker. Ah, did I say that out loud? Everyone's bad at poker. Um, Yeah, they're not that good at poker. They haven't studied. If you don't study, you should not expect to win. And look, what I'm telling you right here is not rocket science. Figure out what your opponent does wrong and take advantage of it. Simple as that. Simple as that, right? Don't try to get all overly complicated and convoluted. If your opponent's too tight, play hands that can beat the too tight of range. The chance of hitting a flush is incredibly small, though. You're not only trying to hit a flush. You're trying to hit a flush or two-pair or a trip or a straight. Is a suited gapper like 9-6 really better than a hand like King-Jack offsuit? Yes. When you have King-Jack offsuit, consider what hands make you a straight. Or what flops make you a straight? The high card flops, right? Unfortunately for you, your opponent, look at what they're raising. They're raising high cards. They're blocking you to death. Also, when King-Jack makes one pair like top pair, it's usually kind of hard to get away from. Say flop comes King-6-3 and your opponent bets the flop and bets the turn and bets the river, are you really trying to fold top pair? Not really. With 9-6 when it comes King-9-3, not you realize 9-6 is not all that good there, right? Also, when you make a straight with 9-6, Well, first off, your cards are super-duper live, and your opponent's not going to put you on two-pair or a set or whatever because the board's not king-queen-nine. Aces can look at a board like king-queen-nine and think, oh, this is not great. Whereas on whatever, on 10-8-7, like, ah, you know, it's okay. Or 8-7-5, ah, it's okay, right? Is it because you're so deep that you're raising king-eight suited under the gun? Let's look at 40 big lines deep. No, you actually raise wider. Why? Because you're positional advantage is lessened as stacks get deeper. I'm sorry, shallower. As stacks get shallower, being out of position is less bad. That said, 20 big blinds deep. Same story. 15 big blinds deep. Same story. 12 big blinds deep. My chart not working. I'm on the admin site. Sometimes the admin site gets slow. I need the chart to change. Change chart. Maybe I'll just click refresh. Luckily, you all don't have to deal with the slow, clunky admin charts. We actually are adding a bunch of new charts to the site. You see all these charts we have now? We're consolidating it for all of you. This is my god mode admin view. We have a bunch of new charts coming. The problem is they're slightly slow. Whatever. We'll get back to that. You love it when I get angry at dumb comments. I don't get get angry at dumb comments. I'm just confused by them. 50-week blinds, under the gun. Here we go. 8 suited, 15 big blinds deep, you should raise. Again, people are asking, oh my God, I can't believe we're raising this hand. It tells me you have not studied much at all. I'm sorry, but that's what it tells me. And luckily for you, luckily for you, that means you have a lot to improve on, which means you'll get way better, way faster. You plan on talking about cash game scenarios? We are not talking about cash games here. We are talking about specifically these hypothetical scenarios I'm thinking about off the top of my head because I prepared this presentation in about three minutes. Oh, someone asked, are we updating cash game stuff at Coaching? We have a gigantic advanced cash game course coming out in November. What month, what's the day? What's today? October 30th, oh my God, I better get to work. I have a large section on multi-wave scenarios I'm uh, putting out, well, recording it today. We'll be putting out in the middle of the month, next month. We have a lot of content by... Um, Justin Saliba, he's made a lot of content. Jonathan Jaffe, who is crushing it over in Triton right now, he put out a lot of content. Chris Brewer, you all know Chris Brewer? New poker coaching guest coach for now. Chris Brewer's been on a bit of a tear, for those who don't know Chris Brewer. He's a little bit quiet. He stays under the radar. He's only cashed for uh, $19 million in, in tournaments recently. So that's good for him. He actually was on a super bad run. He was, just like, bubbling every single tournament. <laughs> every big tournament, too. Like, the $300,000 dollar buy-in ones. Anyway, Chris Brewers me be making some content in the best cash game. Of course, he plays tons of cash games. We have some stuff by Rampage Poker, um, Brad Wilson, Super Crusher Online. So Anyway. Anyway. All that's coming out. Yeah, Super Eye Roller bubble was brutal. Funny enough, would you believe that he bubbled the Super Eye Roller tournament? But uh, he actually bubbled me... In uh, the previous super high roller, where I had uh, aces and he had queens, but I think he still lost. So that's fun. Anyway, we have a lot of content coming out very, very soon. We have charge for multiway. Indeed. They're coming out in the cash game section very, very soon. So we have a brand new advanced cash game course coming out. We had an advanced tournament course come out last year. You all loved it. And this is similar. I'm sorry. We had an advanced tournament course come out last year. In November, you all loved it, and we have an advanced cash game course coming out this year. Yes, we are, we do a way charts coming out in the cash game section. I'm going to make a point; we get it for the tournaments as well. It's just a matter of building it. It's way uh, look. This chart's actually pretty easy for heads up spots because you can see there's only one, two, three, four variables, right? But it, it gets a little bit more difficult whenever you talk about um, you talk about super multiway spots. Whatever, we got it coming out. Answer is yes. Anyway, King Eight Suit is good. And like I said, you should probably be raising even wider. <clears throat> okay. So, yeah. Against people who don't fold strong hands. There you go. Get in there. Every pro you know thinks I suck at poker. Sure. You know, fine. <laughs> Could you imagine thinking someone who studies with literally the best players in the world who has taught a lot of them is bad at poker? So funny. People are so ignorant. All right. All right. Some people are too tight until they show aggression. Some players play overly tight, but once they do get in the pot, they are usually playing for all their money. For example, say you raise in some tight player three bets. Well, what should you do? You should overfold, right? We talked about this earlier. For example, say someone Someone raises, you 3-bet them, and then they 4-bet you. And we've already determined when they 4-bet, they have a super-duper strong range, right? Maybe they raise completely normally. Presume they raise completely normally. But then when they do 4-bet, they 4-bet too tightly. Let's go back to the charts. Uh, Where are we looking at? 80 big blinds deep. We want to be on the button versus a 4-bet. Oh, no, we want to be at the cutoff. We want to look at what we're supposed to be 3-bet. Uh... We want to look at what we're supposed to be forbetting betting versus a button. Here we go. So, cutoff raises, button, 3-bets, back to us. What should we forbet If your opponent does not forbet these hands, like we discussed earlier, you should be calling off far tighter, right? You should be sticking around tighter because they've already announced they have a very strong hand. Same thing goes post-flop, where if uh, a tight player check-raises, there are plenty of spots on the flop where your opponent should check-raise all sorts of draws. Say you raise, big blind call, flop comes 9 seven, 5 they check, you bet. They check raise. A lot of players, well, on nine seven five, I can tell you they should be check raising with hands like, um, well, any any hand with a six or an eight, right? Lots of hands with a gut shot should be check raising in this scenario. So if they should be check raising. Lots of hands here with an eight or a six, but they are not. Perhaps they're check raising only top pair with a good kicker or better. Well, now what should you stick around with? The answer is not. Middle pair with the trash kicker, which very often you should be sticking around against a check raise with if they are going to be check raising with far too much nonsense, you know, draws with okay equity. So if they're not going to be check raising often enough, you in turn should be drastically overfolding. Again, figure out what your opponents do wrong and then adjust logically. Next, some players can be weak on specific betting rounds. Some people will play normally until a specific betting round, then they become very, very weak and tight because many players have studied pre-flop and flop strategies, but they do not know how to play the turn and river because there are way, way, way more turn and river situations. So, as a very clear example of this, say someone raises, you call the big one, flop comes whatever, you check, they bet, you call. Turn is whatever, you check, and at this point... A lot of players do not know how often they should be betting on various terms. Some people only bet the term when they have a really good hand. When I say some people, I mean a lot of people. If They're only going to be betting the term for something like top pair or better, and super logical draws. Well, what does that do to their betting range on the term? Well, it makes their turn betting range incredibly strong, right? So if their betting range is incredibly strong, when they bet the turn, what should you do? With a hand like, top pair, bad kicker? Or worse? Well, you should drastically overfold, right? Because when they bet the turn, you know their range is quite strong. What about when it goes check, check, though? When it goes check, check on the turn, which is very often what it will do, it means they have top pair with a marginal kicker or worse a lot of the time, or some trash. And against that range, you can bet the river. And quite often against these players, if you overbet the river, they're going to drastically overfold because they're going to presume that you are now just trying to get value from your hand that you're annoyed you missed value from because they didn't bet the turn. So you can 1.5x the pot or 2x the pot in this scenario and win. A large chunk of the time. And that's going to be a very, very strong play. Essentially, you're going to want to take lines against these players on specific betting rounds that they view as strong that will make them fold almost their entire range. And this play is especially good when they are lightly capped. And you want to find spots where your opponent's strategy essentially caps them. Meaning, the best they can have is top pair with a bad kicker or worse. And fortunately for you, a lot of these players will even bet their top pair good kickers. Or top top pair with any kicker and better. So that means when they do check it, they have middle pair or worse. And a lot of players who are a little bit weak and a little bit straightforward... Will not really want to call big bets with middle pair. You're going to find that in scenarios where they don't realize middle pair is one of the best hands they can have due to the way they play the hand, they in turn are going to drastically overfold because they think they're only supposed to continue with two pair and better without reason- realizing they have almost no two pair and better in their range. So for spots like that, we completely run your opponent over. Next, some players will be weak against specific betting lines. This is because some players frequently take specific lines with only or almost entirely only, the effective nuts. For example, some players, when they check-raise the flop, they always have the nuts. And the nuts meaning, you know, very good hands, top pair, good kicker, or better, maybe two-pair and better. If they are going to be check-raising with only two-pair and better, well, they're going to presume, or at least some of these players will presume, a lot of their opponents will do the same. So if they think that you are only going to be check-raising with top pair, good kicker, and better, because they think their opponents play like they play, then you're gonna completely smash them because you can now check-raise with all sorts of trash, right? This is also gonna be especially good whenever the board is not good for their range, but good for your range because they are very rarely gonna have the nuts and they're gonna think that it's even more likely that you have the nuts, right? So, I mean, going back to the 9.75 board we discussed, say somebody raises, you call the big blind with 9.75, you check, they bet, and you raise. This is a spot where a lot of these players who are especially weak if they think you're only check raising two pair and better on 975 some of these players will ditch hands like pocket aces. I know it sounds insane, but especially if players are playing a little bit out of their comfort zone or they they're just tight in general and they they see monsters under the bed, they think you just have whatever the nuts are. Some of these players will let it go very very early. And this becomes even more true on the turn in the river when you can start putting in a substantial amount of your opponent's money. I mean, to be fair, something we talk about on YouTube a lot is that when most players in most games check-raise the river, they almost always have the effective nuts. So if your opponent knows that almost everyone in your game almost has the always has the effective nuts when they check-raise the river, and you check-raise the river, well, they're going to fold almost everything, right? So... If they're going to fold almost everything, you should start check-raising a ton on the river, especially when you cannot beat your opponent's value betting range, meaning you should not really be bluff catching, even if you have a natural bluff catcher. And you especially want to do this when you block the effective nuts. On paired boards, this is going to be when you block full houses. So if you have, like, bottom pair, middle pair, and there's a pair on the board. And on three flush boards, it's going to be when you have the ace of that suit that makes the flush. On straight boards, it's going to be whenever you have one or two blockers to the straight. Like, say you have pocket 10s and the board's jack, 8, 7, right? Check call the flop, check call the turn, check the river. If your opponent bets again, your 10s are almost all uh, never good on jack, 8, 7. But you block the straight hard, right? And you can then check shove them on the river for a lot of chips, and they're going to fold almost everything because they are going to naturally put you on the nuts. And you know they can't have the nuts all that often because they may not play 10-9 offsuit to begin with, And you have two of the other 10, so there's only two combinations of 10-9 suited left, right? So, there you go. Nice and easy. You can blast them out of the pot a large chunk of the time. And of course, some people are going to think, sometimes they call and you lose, though. Yeah, sometimes they call and you lose. You're not always going to win. So many players hate getting stacked. They despise getting stacked, and this results in them literally never bluffing ever. And that makes them super easy to play against. And that's good for you, right? And this is why you should be drastically overfolding two check raises on the river because people don't do it often enough. But if they think you're not going to check raise often enough or they're just going to fold almost everything to the river check raise, then you're going to win almost every pot. You think, you think people hate being seen as a lunatic. That's an interesting one. I mean, I think a lot of people just feel stupid when they lose a big pot that they did not have to play in that manner without realizing that it would actually be stupid to not play the hand in that manner. It's funny that a lot of people think, all right, I'm going to give you respect and I'm going to make a big fold. Whenever you give someone respect and make a big fold, you're really saying, I think you are so weak and tight and bad at poker that I'm going to fold everything to you. That is the ultimate insult you can make to someone, is to drastically overfold to them, to give them respect. People don't even realize what they're saying because they they don't understand poker at all. And... Well, that's why the game's alive and well, even in 2023. I'm not going to lie. Whenever I was grinding poker hard back in 2003, or 5, I did not think the game was going to last forever uh, like it has. I mean, I say forever. It's only been 20 years that I've been doing it. But I have been surprised that the game has stayed as good as it has stayed. And it stayed as good as it stayed for numerous reasons. We're not going to get into that today. But it's good. At what stakes does this work? All of them. I think, if anything... Well, definitively, as your opponents play worse and worse, as your opponents are more and more unstudied, they are going to make more and more and more errors. It's up to you to figure out which type of errors they are going to make. Today, we're discussing specifically how to crush tight poker players. We're not discussing how to crush all poker players. We're discussing how to crush tight poker players. Somebody asked right at the start of the show, how do you play against someone who never folds anything? Well, the answer is don't do these things, (laughs) right? We only had one slide about people who don't don't fold anything. But listen, If you always have to figure out what your specific opponent does incorrectly. That is how you go about maximally exploiting any type of player who makes errors. But these exploits work at all stakes across the board. Simple as that. I think a lot of people think that exploits are very... like, stake-specific. Uh, and there certainly are player pool exploits in general. For example, I don't think most people in almost any games check-raise the river often enough, even in the highest-stakes games. Whenever I go and I play a $25,000 buy-in tournament against most people, I'm not expecting the check-raise bluff me quite often enough on the river. Maybe Chris Brewer does. He's about the only one. Oh my god, I played this one-hand once against Chris Brewer on the river. I had the ace-high flush, but there were two straight flushes available. Okay? I think... uh, I don't remember how it went, but... The gist of it is, this was like first hand of a $50,000 buy-in tournament, okay? First hand of a $50,000 buy-in tournament. Super early. On the river, he bet one big blind into a 20 big blind pot. I made it 20 big blinds with the ace high flush, and he made it 200 big blinds all in. <laughs> one... 20, 200. On the river, against Chris Brewer, who is our newest guest coach at PokerCoaching.com. And... You may ask, should we fold the ace-high flush when there are two straight flushes available and he could reasonably have both of them? Well, some people think, no, you lose to the nuts. I mean, the guy took the super strong line. Other people think, is Chris Brewer going to take too many eight of diamonds X and jam it? And I know, if anything, Chris Brewer likes to overbluff because he thinks people are... Well, I'm not going to say what Chris Brewer thinks. I'm going to say Chris Brewer tries to play good, strong GTO poker. He's one of the players, kind of like Justin Sleba, who has studied with the solver more than almost anyone. And, uh, well, they, they don't really miss. It's tough when you're playing against players who don't really miss. And, um, I knew this. I knew that, I knew that Chris Boer is a good, strong, studied player and he does not miss, but I called it off. Revive necessary. Yeah, it's a tough spot where he really doesn't get to have that many bluffs. He gets to have a tiny sprinkle of bluffs. That's the spot where it's actually easy to overbluff, I think. Because you get to have two combinations of nuts. Which means you get to have, like, given he's jamming for so much, at most, two combinations of bluffs. Actually, you get to have, like, 1.7 or whatever it is. I know everyone. You gets to have 1.7 combinations of bluffs. But how many blank Eight of Diamonds are in his range? Like, a lot of them. A lot of them. So... It's a spot where, unlike most scenarios where it's kind of hard to find bluffs, this is a spot where it's super easy to find bluffs. And then the question is, is Chris Brewer willing to do this? Is he someone who is not afraid to make a play? Is he someone who does not care if he's caught bluffing? Because if it's a play he thinks is profitable or just part of a good, robust GTO strategy that's going to win him the pot on average, which is what happens, by the way, when you bluff with a perfectly polarized range on the river, well, then he's going to go for it. So anyway, I don't know how many combinations he's going to bluff on the river, but he had one of them this time. I don't remember what he had, but he had an eight of diamonds with something. Um, so he did have the logical blocker. And I won the pot, so that was cool. But most people in most games would have whatever blank with eight of diamonds and literally never, ever, ever take that line. Ever. Never, ever, ever. And they bet small on the river, you should definitely raise with the ace-high flush. If they re-raise you, you should definitely fold. It's not even close. Your hand should trivially hit the muck. Yeah, there's only two combinations of nuts, but... I don't think they're going to have too many bluffs in this scenario at all. Probably none. And there are a lot of spots in poker where your opponents will have literally no bluffs at all. Live poker is where you can smell what your opponents are up to and what they're feeling. Yeah, I mean, so many times in live poker, you can just look and tell. I mean, especially in the small and medium stakes games against players who, you know, for example, want to play a pot with Jonathan Little because they want to try to push him around and make a story. Or they think he's bad at poker because they talk to some $200 buy-in tournament players and they think I'm bad at poker or whatever. These players are the players you can literally look and tell because they are so novice that they have, you can look and tell what they're doing because essentially they don't know how to play poker. They have no good control of their poker face. They have no good control of their emotions. And it's very, very clear what they're trying to do. Usually just by the way they're simply looking at you. They look at you a little bit funny. And you can see the funny looks coming a mile away. And I'm not going to say that I'm in, uh, like, Phil Helmuth category or Phil Ivey category or da- Dale Negreanu category. But a lot of the players who are kind of like me, who are playing a lot of the high-stakes games, have this same experience where they can just literally look and tell some players are either going to drastically overbluff because they want to try to show you who's boss. They want to prove themselves. They want to get a story. Or, or number two, they're going to completely stay out of your way. Because either they, they're not going to try to bluff this type of player, or maybe because they like you. Take players like myself or Negranu, who do a good job of making content. I know some people hate Negranu, Some people hate me. But if you're out there making content, people will inevitably like you. And if people like you, quite often they're not trying to bust you. So you have that, that going one way as well. And then that leads to scenarios where some people are either like really trying to get you or really trying to not get you. And either way, if you can just figure out what that is, poker becomes easy you get chips dumped to you from the ones who are trying to get you and you get to save a lot of chips against the ones who are trying to not get you and um, well that's good, that's good for me, (laughs) that said in reality if you're ever playing against someone who you love or you respect or you hate or whatever just play normal, try to play good strong GTO poker, don't get too crazy, don't get too insane, a lot of people think poker is all about trying to out macho your opponent or out Trick your opponent. But at the highest stakes games, you're just trying to play good, strong, fundamentally sound poker. And I mean, that, that's at least where you should be starting And until you can figure out how your opponent's going to perceive you. And I think most people don't approach poker that way. And that is why most people never reach the highest stakes. They, they have a lot of things going through their minds that simply do not matter. If you have a lot of nonsense going through your mind, that does not matter. You will inevitably. Make blunders. And if you make a lot of blunders on a regular basis, you're not going to make it. Simple as that. I mean, I've been coaching Slick Rick recently, who just won the World Series circuit ring yesterday. And we've worked on some mindset issues. i actually actually recording all of our coaching sessions that um, we're going to be putting in PokerCoaching.com. So far, we've done four or five or six, something like that. And those are all going to be in Poker Coaching. You're going to be able to see us working with him from literally never played many live cash games at all, to now making 120 bucks an hour over the course of a month. And certainly, I've pushed him to the games I think are going to be the most profitable. He's getting in good spots, whatever. But he has the mindset flaws right off the bat. And I've done my best to chill him out a little bit, right? And if you think about the things that matter, and you implement the things that matter, and you don't worry about the nonsense, you're going to go incredibly far because you're not spending effort and time and energy on things that are irrelevant. And uh, fortunately for you, most things are irrelevant. Mindset has to be your biggest leak. Well, crazy flits. Why? What is causing you trouble? At the end of the day, if you got a problem and you know you have a problem, find a solution to the problem. You have to have a little bit of discipline to succeed at poker. You really do. You have to have a you have to have self awareness and discipline. And if you don't have those two things, you're going to be drawing very very thin in poker. And Fortunately for you, you can relatively easily develop them. And also fortunately for you, you can figure out easy solutions. For example, say, after you play poker, and you play poker great, if you lose, you want to go try to get even by playing roulette. Let's just pretend that's your problem. Okay, well, don't go by the roulette table. Step one, if you don't want to slip, don't go where it's slippery. Number two, really study roulette and realize that every time you spend the wheel, you're losing 5% or 3% or uh, 7% depending on where you're playing nowadays, right? Realize every time you bet the money, you're going to lose. Also realize that it doesn't really matter if you're up or down for any individual session because obviously poker is a long run game. Essentially, you have to understand math a little bit better. Most people who are horribly addicted to negative EV games are not... Well-versed in math. Is mindset more important than skill? Mm, depends on the person. I think I was pretty lucky to naturally come into poker with a very strong mindset and that I realized if something loses a lot of money, I probably shouldn't do it. I don't think a lot of people naturally realize that. I also was naturally set up to have good self-control and good discipline. I think that happened when... Uh, Back as a kid, I used to play a lot of chess. I would wake up at 4 a.m. and play chess from 4 a.m. till 7 a.m. when it was time to go to school. And I got very good at online chess as a child, right? And that taught me good discipline. If you lost your cool or got frustrated or whatever, you would lose. And I was very good at like one-minute and two-minute games, like fast, grindy chess, right? Like you're, you're in there, you're doing it. There's no time to sit and hang out and regain your cool. And I think that was a very good training ground. From there, I went and I played Magic the Gathering. I would go play... 16 long hour uh, Magic the Gathering sessions, and I was very good at it. At one point, I was number 11 in the world at the format I liked, which is, you know, good for a child. And I think that taught you good discipline staying sane and staying strong, right? And you have to learn this. You got to learn this. You have to learn that discipline is important, and doing the things that you know are right that will result in you succeeding is very, very relevant, right? If you don't, if I think a lot of people have not just been trained is what it amounts to. I've been training to be a good, strong poker player since I was six years old without even realizing it, right? And I think a lot of people have not. They're foreign to the concept. Simple as that. And um, you got to get good at it. You got to realize that. I mean, whenever you go play a Magic: The Gathering tournament, sometimes you just lose. You just completely lose. Like, you, you don't get the right cards. <laughs> I learned that I don't get the right cards when I was 12 years old, and I, I'm i cool with it, right? A game I currently love today is a game called Hearthstone Battlegrounds. I love this game, I think it's fantastic. I wish I could just be a Hearthstone Battlegrounds streamer. There's no money in it, but I wish I could do that. And I think it's like the best game. It's really, really good. There's a lot of variance in it, though. You can play well, and you can get completely crapped on. And that's okay. Some people, when they get completely crapped on due to variance, they go on tilt. I personally don't care at all. When I go and I show up and I lost on the first hand of the Storm X tournament where I won that trophy way up there just the other day, did I care that I got lost on the first hand to a coin flip? No. I was happy with my play. Very, very happy with my play, and I would do it again. <laughs> I would run it right back in there, and I would do it again. Chris Wolf has a, has a uh, formula. I bet this is the wrong formula, but uh, let's see. Skill times, you can't have a lot of multiplications. It's not how it works. Skill times experience times mindset times discipline times bankroll management times volume equals success. I mean, look, at the end of the day, find a game you can beat, play it a lot, keep a proper bankroll, and you will win. Simple as that. Most people, though, don't find a game they can beat, they don't keep a proper bankroll, and they don't put in volume. Why does Matt Berkey think that no one can put in a lot of volume playing live cash games? I don't know. I do think there are two types of poker players, though. There's Definitively, I can tell you for a fact there's two types of poker players. There's poker players like me who will literally sit there all day and can play not the best in the world. I'm not saying I'm the best poker player in the world, but I can play for a very long time pretty well. And to be fair, I think I play, like my A game, call it, my A game all the time. And I think if I do have a B, C, D game, it's pretty good. I think my D game, super drunk out of my mind, is pretty good. I don't know why, it's just how my brain works. Other people though, They are either playing their A game or they're playing their F game, and their F game's bad. Now, I'm not going to say this is Jonathan Jaffe, but I'm going to use Jonathan Jaffe as an example of this. I love Jonathan Jaffe. He's one of my good friends. He's a coach of poker coaching, and I actually think he just might be the best poker player in the world. Seriously, I think he may actually be the best. He does not play a whole lot of poker at all. Compared to me, I don't even know, his volume may be like 10% or something, but he wins a ton And when he shows up, he is on. You do not want to play poker with Jonathan Jaffe because he is going to crush you. He'll crush everybody. And he makes, like, the most epic plays all the time. I mean, he he literally just just won a Triton tournament just the other day. For God knows how much money again. And he does not put in much volume. And I think there are two different kinds of players like that. And maybe Matt Berkey, who thinks you can't put in good volume, is that type of player who needs a lot of off time, And people who need a lot of off-time, they cannot fathom how some people don't need a lot of off-time. But you got to realize, everyone's not the same, right? I personally really wanted to coach Slick Rick because he told me he was working 80 hours a week in a high-stress corporate job, and he didn't really like it. He didn't like the sector he was in. And he loves poker, and he wants to put in 70 or 80 hours a week at Poker Plus Poker Content Creation, Well, I love the fact that he's already been grinding hard at uh, one job for a few years successfully. I love the fact that he got a degree from a school that that was a, I know is a very rigorous curriculum. That's good. It shows me this guy can grind hard, right? I think that I've done a really good job teaching super-duper hard grinders. And um, I think he could very easily be one of them. And so far, he's, he's doing pretty well. 120 an hour at cash games cash for tournaments for 100k in two months, playing relatively small stakes games. And I think that's good. Sometimes you got to recharge your batteries. So Chris, that's the funny thing. I don't think I really need to recharge my batteries. I know that sounds insane to a lot of people. But from when I was 21, I'm sorry, when I was 18 to 21, I played and or studied poker literally 16 hours a day every day. I know a lot of people think that's insane. They think it's just a lie because it's not possible for them. But I'm crazy. (laughs) I can sit there and I can study and or play poker 16 hours a day. To be fair, it's probably actually only 15 because I did watch TV and eat for an hour each day. I would take half a day off each year to visit family at Christmas time. And I did that for three years. And I turned 50 bucks into 350,000 bucks. And that was a lot of money for me as a kid. It was a nice grind up. It's a nice, nice good way to turn no money into some money. And I know some people who are like that. I know some people who are not like that. And there's nothing right or wrong with either of them. But it seems to me that a lot of people in 2023 completely lack empathy. They do not understand that other people can do things that make perfectly good sense to them that work very well for them but that absolutely will not work for you. And that's it. That's okay. And I understand that Everyone's not for everyone, and a lot of people have opinions that they think matter that are completely irrelevant. And I think it's important for you, especially in 2023 on social media, to realize that most people who do a lot of talking think they know what they're talking about, but they do not. And you're gonna find that the people who often talk the least, but know, and succeed at a very high level of one or two specific things are usually the ones you need to be following. If someone thinks they know a lot about everything, they probably don't. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, click the like and subscribe button below. Click the notification bell. Have fun. Make the most of your opportunities. All I want is to help all of you become the absolute best you can be, whatever that means for you. Check out the book, 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em. There you go. Maybe you'll like it. Maybe you won't. If you enjoyed today's show, you probably will. You can get it on Amazon or d Poker. Uh, we have an advanced cash game course coming out on PokerCoaching.com very, very soon. Lots of content from many of the best crushers in the world. Dunning-Kruger effect. There you go, Chris Wolf. You know what you're talking about. So yeah, that's that. At what stakes is he making $120 an hour? We started him off playing 1-3, no limit hold'em. He quickly was crushing 1-3 for about 60 bucks an hour. I'm like, you need to move to 2-5. He moved to 2-5. Good. Then he moved to 2-5-10. Then he started getting into the stream games. I told him to sell off a lot of action in the stream games. That was a mistake because he crushed those too. But um, we're, we're working within bankroll. I'm trying, to not, I'm trying to make sure he doesn't go broke. But mostly at 2.510, he's making 120 an hour, which is about where he can make 120 an hour. When am I playing next? My next stop is going to be to the Bahamas for the World Series of Poker. I think that's going to be an epically amazing series. It's going to be a lot of fun. Matt is going to be sharing a lot of my stories from the Bahamas next week on this show. I had a lot of fun in the Bahamas. My first big score was in the Bahamas. I had two good scores this year. I took fourth and a ninth last year in the Bahamas. This actually was early. Was it early this year? I don't even know when it was. Time flies when you are having fun. Um, anyway, we'll talk about all of that next week. And then the next week, we're going to be going through a lot of hands from this tournament, this one right here, where I won $130,000 bucks 2 days ago. That's it. Good luck. Have fun. Make the most of your opportunities. Thank you for being here, and I will talk to all of you next time. Oh, we're having a study session right now in the Poker Coaching Discord. Ran by Louis Fleek. Get in there. Bye-bye.